in chapter 19. So Pastor Ben read chapter 18, verses 16 through the end of that chapter. Uh, Now I'd like to ask that we read Genesis 19, verses 1 through 29. Genesis 19, beginning in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Verse 9, but they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in this city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Verse 15, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape for the hills, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. 
And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let's pray once more. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this passage was, is exceedingly sobering, we pray that you would bring upon this gathering a solemn seriousness as we consider the things that you reveal to us here in your Word. We pray that the Word of God would go forth as the oracles of God, that it would do its work among us, that you would move upon each one of us to flee the wrath to come into the arms of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. This past September, as we were preparing to mark the 20th year since the September 11th terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City, I purposed to set aside time to study and understand that event on a deeper level than I have in the past. And to that end, I did two things. I watched the six-part Hulu documentary titled 9-11, One Day in America, which was one of the most moving and gripping things I think I've ever watched. And I also read Garrett M. Graff's The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9-11. And there was so much that I learned and so much that I had not considered and so much that I only appreciated for the first time as I consulted those resources, so many parts and elements of that horrific day that were brought to my attention in a new way. I highlight just one of them. It stood out to me in watching the video footage from that day itself from the interviews that people gave after that day, from reading various accounts, just how many people who were present on that day commented on how blue the sky was in New York City the morning of September 11, 2001. You may have read this yourself or seen this in footage. It was a picture-perfect September day. The weather was beautiful. It had just entered into the fall months, and it was a normal and lovely day in New York City. The sky was utterly cloudless. The people, as you read the various accounts provided in uh, Graf's book, described it variously as clear blue, or deep blue, or ocean blue. I learned that pilots have a, a word for this when there are literally no clouds in the sky. They'll call it severe clear. Uh, literally, you can see for miles and miles without any kind of impediments. That was the kind of morning the people of New York City woke up to on September 11, 2001. And so many in the documentary and in the book comment on how altogether unsuspecting everyone was that day. Even the weather seemed to say this day is going to be just fine. Everything about the day was normal and bright and picture perfect. Everyone just going about their day, going to work, going to school, eating and drinking, picking up and dropping off, carrying on with all the routines of life. It was the most ordinary of days. And of course, you know that in a moment, everything changed. The radical suddenness of that first plane piercing the sky plunged that city into utter chaos and utter ruin. And within just a couple of hours, those towers that stood as a monument to human strength and ingenuity and national pride were little more than an ash heap. 
I guarantee you that if anyone had known what that day would bring, no one would have gone to work in New York City. In fact, New York City would have been completely emptied and evacuated, and all would have fled from what was to come. But of course, no one did do that because no one saw what was coming. If all goes according to plan, we have only three more sermons in the series on the life of Abraham. This sermon this morning from Genesis 19, and then two sermons from Genesis 21 and 22. We will not cover uh, the final 10 verses or so of chapter 11. Uh, We will skip chapter 20 entirely. And I'll remind you, this is only a survey of the life of Abraham. We have purpose to address those episodes in his life, particularly that the New Testament picks up for comment, and that's no different with the text we have this morning. Our regular exposition brings us to the latter half of Genesis 18 and primarily the better portion of Genesis 19, which is very well known and is a profoundly sobering passage and event in Scripture. Uh, I would like to first give a word about the structure of this section. Of course, the Sodom and Gomorrah episode looms large in the Christian mind and imagination. Uh, That is because it is reflected upon at several points later on in the Bible. Uh, Frequent references made of what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. But even more than that, in the Christian tradition, in art and in literature and in culture, Sodom Sodom and Gomorrah looms large. In fact, if you were to evaluate uh, in the wider culture, even those who have no knowledge of church settings and things like that, Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah would be toward the top of the list of proper nouns we have in the Bible that people have heard of and have some knowledge of what we're talking about. But I don't want us to miss the framing of the narrative. Uh, The narrative is framed by Abraham's prayer and God's answer to Abraham's prayer. Look again, if you would, at Genesis 18, verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake." There's just a few things about Abraham's prayer I think we should know. We should first note Abraham's boldness in prayer. Abraham felt the confidence, the boldness to stand before the Lord. And it was a confidence and an assurance and a boldness that was not built on his own merit, but rather a boldness that was created and nurtured in the context of the covenant relationship of love and grace and mercy that God had initiated toward Abraham. God had created a situation in which Abraham could come boldly into the presence of God and make his petitions known. But it's not just his boldness that we should acknowledge. Uh, Notice also Abraham's persistence in prayer. I'm not going to read the rest of the passage that Pastor Ben read, but again and again, Abraham renews his petition to the Lord, and his boldness increases. Lord, what if it's 40? What if it's 30? What if it's 20? What if it's 10? He feels the freedom to bring his petition again and again and again with increased boldness as he prays to the Lord. And he's not shy about appealing to the Lord on the basis of the Lord's character. We saw that a moment ago. Lord, you're, you're a righteous God. 
Shall you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Shall not you, Lord, the judge of all, do what is right? We see his boldness in prayer, his persistence in prayer. Finally, we see his triumph in prayer, because as verse 29 makes very clear, God heard and answered Abram's prayer, not in precisely the way he asked it and expected it, but he nonetheless remembers Abraham's prayer and asks acts for Abraham's sake. Verse 29 of chapter 19, this is the end of the narrative, the Sodom and Gomorrah episode sandwiched between Abraham's prayer and God's answer, which is acknowledged in verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. I'm saying Abraham triumphed in prayer. He goes to the Lord and asks that the righteous would be delivered even in the midst of God's judgment. And God remembers Abraham, and for Abraham's sake and the sake of his prayer, he delivers Lot. And listen to me, Abraham's prayer itself became the instrument through which God brought about Lot's deliverance. I'll say that again. Abraham's prayer on Lot's behalf became the instrument through which God delivered Lot, meaning the Lord, though He is sovereign over all and before the foundations of the world, determined that He would rain fire and sulfur upon the wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah, orchestrated and used the prayer of Abraham to be the means through which He delivers Lot. I say that simply to say, brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches that prayer affects things. Prayer changes things. You may say, well, if the Lord is ordained whatsoever comes to pass, what's the point of my prayers? The Lord is going to do what the Lord is going to do. Not so fast. The Lord makes plain that His people ought to pray. They ought to be bold in coming to Him and making their petitions known. They ought to be persistent, and God will be pleased to work through their prayers. Brother, sister, God uses your prayers to bring about His ends in the world. And that's what happens in this narrative, in this account. For Abram's prayer... In remembrance of Abram, God acts on behalf of Lot. And I just want to say that up front, not only to acknowledge the framing of the Sodom and Gomorrah episode, but to give you encouragement yourself to be bold in prayer, persistent in prayer, to triumph in prayer. As you pray for your lost children and grandchildren, your lost parents and grandparents, your lost neighbors, as you pray for God to make a way for the gospel in the world, as you pray for God to heal your marriage, don't lose heart. God makes our prayers the instrument of His activity in the world. But now I'd like us to consider Genesis 19, 1 through 29, and the narrative, the episode regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. And rather than going verse by verse through Genesis 19, what I want us to do is look at two of the main New Testament passages that reflect upon Genesis 19. Two of them, and there's several passages that make reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, two passages in particular I want us to turn to, to consider how we in the New Testament age and the New Covenant ought to reflect back on the very familiar events of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those two passages are Luke 17, verses 22 through 37, and 2 Peter 2, verses 6 through 9. Luke 17, 2 Peter 2, please turn first of all to Luke 17. Luke chapter 17. And I'll just say, if I could step aside from the sermon for a minute, what we are doing is a, a, a simple uh, facet 
of Bible study that's crucially important. If you want to understand an Old Testament passage and its bearing upon the New Covenant people of God and the world today, one of the very first things you want to do is to ask the question, does the New Testament reflect on this event or this passage? And, and in what way does it reflect upon the passage? So that's all we're doing this morning. Luke 17, so two points today coming from these two passages. The heading of my first point is this, and this is what we learned from Luke 17. The return of Christ will be like the days of Lot. The return of Christ will be like the days of Lot. Please follow along as I read Luke 17, verse 22. Then he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let no one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, there are some differing opinions about what exactly the Lord envisions here. I'll just say I don't think this period, the Son of Man being revealed is a reference to the death and resurrection of Jesus. I don't think it's a reference to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. I believe that in this passage, Jesus is talking about the Son of Man coming in His glory at the last day, the second coming of Christ, the return of the Son of Man. And what are we told here in this passage about the return of Christ? We're told a good deal, but I just want to highlight two things as they relate to Genesis 19 and the account of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. The first is this, what will the return of Christ be like? Number one, it will be sudden, and those who are judged will be unsuspecting, just like the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. It will be sudden, and those who are judged will be unsuspecting, just like the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look again at verse 24, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. What's Jesus saying? It's going to be sudden. I'm trusting all of us have seen this at night, it's dark out, one of those thunderstorms come, and lightning flashes across the sky from one end to the other, and in a moment the sky lights up and everything is seen. Didn't see anything before that. But when lightning flashes, suddenly, quickly, you all of a sudden see everything as it is. It's going to be like that, the return of the Son of Man. He's not going to appear according to some man-made calendar that we put in place for Him. His coming will be sudden. It'll be like a flash of lightning. Verse 28, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking 
buying and selling, planting and building. The reference to the days of Lot is a reference to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment that was to come there. And what's the point Jesus is making? They were just carrying on. Life was just carrying on. People were eating and drinking. They were trading in the marketplace, going about their days. The day when Jesus returns is going to be like that. Everyone will be unsuspecting. It'll be clear blue, severe clear. And what are people going to be doing? They're going to be going to work. They're going to be picking up their kids from school. They're going to be having Thanksgiving dinner as families. They're going to be engaged in all kinds of activities and sins. There'll be people viewing pornography. There'll be people drinking to excess. There'll be people watching football games and baseball games and basketball games. There'll be holidays going on at the beach. There'll be people shopping in malls and things like that. It'll seem like just any other day, but as lightning lights up the sky, as it was in the days of Lot, suddenly the Son of Man will return, and the people upon whom He will return will be unsuspecting. But I think we can say more about the days leading up to the return of Christ from this passage. I think Jesus also intends to indicate by the examples that He gives that the days leading up to the return of the Son of Man will be exceedingly sinful days. I think that's why He uses the examples He uses. It would be like the days of Noah. What, what marked the days of Noah? All the thoughts of man's heart were only evil continually. Exceedingly great wickedness in all the world. It, it's almost as though the narrative is saying, not, not your garden variety sinfulness, but exceedingly great wickedness. So it was in the days of Lot. What was said about Sodom and Gomorrah? Did you catch the statement made in verse 18? Why was the Lord going to rain fire and sulfur on that city in particular? Because their sin was grave. Great wickedness. And the cry had come up to the Lord, the cry for judgment. I think Jesus is saying the days leading up to His return will be like that. Great wickedness and unrighteousness will prevail throughout the world. Verse 29, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom and fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus is pointing back to Genesis 19, our passage this morning, and He's saying this is what it's going to be like when the Son of Man returns. Just as Lot's generation was busy with life and unprepared for the judgment that came upon them in Genesis 19, so also people of this world on the day when Christ returns will not be ready for the return of the Son of Man. It's simply horrific to imagine the shock that will be present in the hearts and minds and in the eyes of hundreds and millions of people when Jesus returns, just going about their lives, not an inkling that this would be the day that they would stand in judgment before the Lord when He comes to judge the nations. But Jesus says more here. There's a second lesson I think that we're to learn. The first was that it will be sudden. Those who are judged will be unsuspecting, but there's a second truth He conveys here in this passage. Those who would be saved must give up this world and their own lives and not be like Lot's wife. Those who would be saved, not the ones who will perish under the barrage of fire and sulfur, those who would be saved 
must give up this world and their very own lives, and they're not to be like Lot's wife. Verse 31, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. In other words, the people who will be saved, the people who will find salvation through judgment, the people who will be saved, they are prepared to depart and have been prepared to depart by already detaching their hearts from the things of this world and have instead stored up for themselves treasures in heaven. For them, Christ is their all in all. And when He appears like lightning that lights up the sky, they're not thinking, oh no, what about my stuff? What about my treasures? In other words, Jesus is saying, the thing that you value, the thing that you supremely love, the thing that you supremely treasure, it's not to be found downstairs in the house with all your stuff. Rather, it's to be found in the skies as the Son of Man descends and draws you up into His glory. That's where your treasure ought to be. And so in the here and now, He's saying, prepare yourself. Unloose your heart from the things of this world. Don't find your satisfaction in sinful self-indulgence. Don't find your heart's contentment in the things of life. Rather, find them in Christ. Don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Rather, store up treasures in heaven. Look to Jesus. Put your hope and your all in Him. Don't look back on the things of this world. And then he says, remember Lot's wife. See, in ancient Jewish tradition, Lot had become something of the typical, quintessential unbeliever who wanted to have one foot in this world and one foot in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying it doesn't work that way. No halting, no hesitating. You cannot serve God and mammon. None of this one foot in and one foot out. You cannot be like Lot's wife. Do you remember what she did? As... as as God had made a way of salvation for her and for her husband and their daughters. And as Sodom and Gomorrah's sin city burned behind her, she looked back. And what's the implication? Those things which she loved, those things which she treasured, her sinful self-indulgence, what she valued was burning behind her, and she turned from the way of salvation that God had offered to them, turned back towards Sodom and Gomorrah with longing upon Sin City and what it is that she was leaving, what it was that she was going to lose. But see, for all those who are in Christ, the return of the Lord Jesus is not loss. It is only great gain. Wh whoever loses his life will find it. Give up your sin, give up this world, and you will find everlasting life. But seek to preserve your sin and guard the sinful pleasures of this world, you will lose your life when the Son of Man returns. Those who would be saved must give up this world and their own lives and not be like Lot's wife. Okay, now I want to ask you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. The second main text that reflects on Genesis 19 and the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. We've seen that Sodom and Gomorrah are telling us something about what the return of Christ will be like. It will be sudden. 
The people who are judged will be unsuspecting. And those who will be saved must detach their hearts from the things of this world and put their all in Christ, turning from their sins and not look back as Lot's wife did. But now 2 Peter chapter 2, this would be toward the very end of your Bibles. I want us to read verses 4 through 10, and this is the second heading, the last heading. As God's wrath came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, so God's wrath is coming against sinners. As God's wrath came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, so God's wrath is coming against sinners. Let's pick up 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. There are two things Peter is doing here by the example given of Sodom and Gomorrah in the account of Genesis 19. First of all, he's highlighting positively, though in the context of some very dark associations, he's highlighting positively that God is able to rescue His people from the present evil age. He rescued Noah and his family in those days of wickedness. He rescued Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. He is able, brother, sister, to save you from the present evil age. He is going to bring the godly through the temptations and trials and wickedness of this world and this life. That's one of the things Jesus does for us in the gospel. Galatians 1 verse 4 says this, the Lord Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brother, sister, you may be in a setting in your work, at the university, or just as a citizen of this godless culture, and you may feel harassed and oppressed by the sins all around you and even those sins that lie within. The comfort word to have here from the account of Genesis 19 is that just as God was able to save Lot from that context of great wickedness, so He is able to save us out of trials and out of sins and out of temptations. God will deliver us also from this present evil age. But the second point Peter is making, and this is the main point, I think, the second point he is plainly making is that if God didn't spare sinful angels, and if He didn't spare sinful people in the days of Noah, and if He didn't spare sinful Sodom and Gomorrah, but decimated them to a mere ash heap, why should we think He will act any differently toward the unrighteous in our day? How should we think, those of you who have not embraced Jesus Christ, God's own Son, as the provision of salvation for you, what reason do you have to think He will act any differently in your case than He did with sinful angels, 
than he did with sinners in the days of Noah, than he did with those sinful people in the account in Genesis 19 in Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter calls to mind Sodom and Gomorrah in this passage to remind us that the wrath of God is coming against sin. People who live in sinful self-indulgence and who live for the pleasures of sin, refuse to repent and turn that they may live, there is reserved for them the same judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And this here is fairly representative of how the Bible in other places reflects on Sodom and Gomorrah. What we have in Genesis 19 in Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture, you could even say a type, of the wrath of God that is to come upon all sin and unrighteousness. Do you recall that phrase that was often on the lips of Jesus in the Gospels? Speaking of this or that city or this or that group that rejects Him, what does He say? It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you. What's he saying? To you who reject me, you think Sodom and Gomorrah was something. You haven't seen anything yet. Sodom and Gomorrah was like a crack in the foundation. It was like the first bullet before a barrage that will come upon the wicked. Sodom and Gomorrah becomes like a preacher to us, calling us to repentance crying out, saying, the wrath of God is coming against sin. And as it came against Sodom and Gomorrah, it will come against the Sodom and Gomorrah of this world. The wrath of God is coming against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Jude makes the same point. You don't need to turn there. That book is one chapter, and in verse 5, Jude 5, we read this. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. He's saying the Lord did this once in history. He did this and unleashed His wrath upon the sinful cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to do the same for the ungodly of this world. The wrath of God is coming against sin. And, and, and what is the gospel call on the lips of the Lord Jesus and on John the Baptist and others? Flee the wrath to come. You have an example of it in the days of Noah. We read a terrible example of it in Genesis 19 in the days of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. But these were just pictures, they were types that one day the Lord is going to carry out His judgment upon the sins of this world. The Sodom and Gomorrah, that is this world in which we live. Peter and Jesus and Jude are saying that Sodom and Gomorrah call us to repentance and announce to us that the wrath of God is coming against all evildoers and workers of iniquity. They're saying Sodom and Gomorrah are a type of the coming wrath of God against the whole world. In fact, their case seems to be that word to view this world as something of a Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what Peter goes on to do, actually, in 2 Peter 2. He describes his current generation. I want you to read along with me, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, beginning in the second half of that verse on down through verse 17. Listen to how Peter describes 
his sinful generation. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, verse 11. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Brother, sister, sin is not cute. Sin is grave, sin is serious, it's not to be winked at, it invites the righteous wrath of God. Verse 13, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery. What a description. Would that not be an apt description of our hypersexualized age? Eyes full of adultery, looking upon wickedness, lusting in the heart and in the flesh. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, meaning like they can't get enough. They can never be satisfied. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Verse 17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. My friend, the Scriptures could not be clearer. God is coming to judge the wicked. And Sodom and Gomorrah are held up to us as a monument to the righteous wrath of God against sin. I know it doesn't seem like it's coming anytime soon. Sky's blue, not a cloud in the sky. What were they doing on the day in which God came to judge those wicked cities? No one knew. No one expected. They thought they sinned with impunity. God doesn't see. Even if He does, He doesn't seem too upset about it. No one expected that day that the wrath of God will come. But what we have seen is that just as in a moment God's wrath came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, so when the Son of Man returns in His glory with great judgment, He will come like a bolt of lightning that flashes up the sky. I say this often, and I say it intentionally often to keep it before you. The Lord Jesus may come in the next five minutes. And there will be hundreds of millions, billions of people who had no inclination that it would be in this moment, that it would be this day. But make no mistake, the wrath of God against sin is coming. And it will be revealed, and it will be sudden, and it will be terrible. And it will overwhelm all those who are unprepared. Friends, Sodom and Gomorrah are calling to us this morning. They call us to repentance. They call us to flee the wrath of God that is coming. They say, be done with your sin. Reject sinful self-indulgence. Reject worldly ways. Say no to sexual and immoral perversion. Leave off your rebellion and your addiction and your bitterness and your anger and your pride. Cry out to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who can save you and who can deliver you from the wrath to come. 
The message is that God saved Noah and his family from the flood. He can do it. God saved Lot from the midst of that wicked city. He can save you, my friend, from this present evil age and those sins which ensnare you. You can be delivered. You can be saved. You can have life everlastingly so. Why should anyone here perish when such good news and salvation is offered? There exists no good reason why any sinner in this place need experience the wrath of God against sin when Jesus has appeared as a substitute for sinners to absorb the wrath of God in our place. And this message is offered to you this morning. Pay attention and heed the word of the Lord as He came in judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. He's coming again, but He offers a way of salvation so that none need die and none need perish in the fire and sulfur that is indeed coming from heaven. Listen to Ezekiel 33 verse 10, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How can we live? Say to them as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? Isaiah 1 verse 18, come now, let us reason together. You could paraphrase this, come now and be reasonable. Think about your condition. Think about the situation. Think about the wrath of God coming against sin. And that there is no help or salvation or mediator between you and that coming wrath, but a mediator is offered. Come, come reason together. Think about your situation, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken grave words, serious words. You will be eaten by the sword, my friend. Fire and sulfur will come upon you. The floods of God's wrath will overwhelm you. But why should you perish? Why should you die when full and free pardon is offered? Isaiah 55 verse 1, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Verse 6, seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God is not willing that you should perish. He has put grace on the table, full pardon, full forgiveness for anyone to have it. There's no tricks up his sleeve. There's no conditions. You cannot disqualify yourself from this offer. My friend, God is coming in righteous judgment and full wrath against the sins that you have committed. But God has given forth His own Son as a substitute that His wrath might be absorbed in your case in the Lord Jesus if you would believe on Him and turn from your sins. Now, I don't know if someone here is tempted to think this. 
You might think, hey, this is a church, right? Did I come in here this morning to just some fire and brimstone kind of presentation? Aren't you guys supposed to preach grace and mercy? My friend, apart from the reality of the coming wrath of God against our sins, which we have merited and which we justly deserve, the grace of God is a farce. It is a cheap thing, a vacuous idea. What makes the gospel so sweet, the mercy of God in Christ so sweet, is that all we have ever earned in our flesh by our deeds is His righteous wrath. Don't let anyone here stand off self-righteously and look down on Sodom and Gomorrah. This is us. If not for the grace of God which saves us and changes us. It's against the backdrop of God's wrath that grace becomes so sweet that God is ready to pour out His mercy upon us. If we would believe, if we would turn from sin, if we would not be like Lot's wife, but look full speed ahead into the eyes and the arms of the coming Son of God who is our Savior and our Deliverer. Oh, it's in the context of wrath that good news comes to us and says you need not perish, you need not die. If you will turn from your sins, you will live. And God's pleasure, God's will, is that you would be fully and freely pardoned from your sins so that your fate would not be the eternal fire that is reserved, the utter darkness and gloom that is reserved for those who live in wickedness and reject God's Son. But rather than that, you might have light and life everlastingly so and that you would know the full forgiveness of your sins. It will be like lightning that lights up the sky. It could be before I end this closing prayer. Are you prepared and are you ready for the judgment that is to come? I plead with you, turn to Jesus that you may live and his promise is that you will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, the repeated warnings that come to us in scripture, they themselves are evidence of your will that sinners turn and live. You did not abandon the human race amidst the wickedness of Noah's day or Lot's day. You have brought to us through your word repeated appeals, repeated calls to come that our souls may live, to turn from sin and to flee the wrath that is to come. We pray, Father, that none here would die and perish in the fire and sulfur of that great day. You have made a way a way of safety by which sinners can be saved and can be changed and can become inheritors of everlasting life. Free grace is this. Sweet grace is this. May all of us sinners in this place, those who justly deserve to be licked up by the fire that consumes Sodom and Gomorrah, we pray that we would plead this grace, depend upon this grace, live by this grace, put our all and our hope in Jesus Christ who brings to us grace upon grace. May we trust him for everything. May his, his mercy shown to sinners be the bread upon which we feast our souls. May you deliver us from having one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom to come. May we be all in for Jesus, looking to him, trusting him, giving up our lives that we may gain it and find it everlastingly so. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.